0: Hello and, and I
1: welcome try. to Call to Action, the go-to podcast for anyone trying to make sense of the world of marketing, advertising and beyond. In an industry that is a minefield of utter bollocks, we aim to capture our heroes and allies from the front line to have a chinwag with. It's like Pokemon Go, with the single but vital exception that it's not a short-term bandwagon of shite. It's brought to you by Gasp and I'm Giles Edwards. Today, I've caught Laura J.B., an award-winning creative, digital pioneer, and trained taxidermist. Laura is a total Adland powerhouse. Currently, she's the president and chief creative officer at Grey London, dishing out delicious work for some of the world's biggest brands. If that wasn't enough, she's also co-founder of world-famous initiatives. She says, Oco and can't festival. A former DNAD president and true champion for diversity, Laura believes in using the power of creativity to make positive change. Laura says, I always loved advertising. It's not anything I ever thought I would go into, but then I realised that actually you can have quite a lot of influence, which is what advertising is all about. In terms of making the world more progressive or making people work together or understand each other in different ways welcome to the show laura (laughs) thank you it's good to be here right seven quick fires laura mac or pc mac london or sydney
0: oh you know that is that is uh, that's a really really hard one i've been in london for 20 years plus now um and i do love it. my family is here but i would say sydney is always my home I'd, I'd love london dearly but it's i think sydney just pips it to
1: the face it's a, it's a mean question isn't it <laughs> chaotic or good
0: oh you know that's another really really hard question i think um it, it's got to it's got to be the mixture of the both of them i think you know i've always kind of been on the side side of good um you know in, in everything that i do but i am ultimately ultimately chaotic at my heart maybe chaos
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh art or advertising
0: uh, I think oh god such hard questions I know they're quick fire I'll say I'll say art but again they're both brilliant things I think advertising you have more of an impact and more influence and you can say bigger things but but again you know I come from fine art background and I think you know that will always be my love and it's where I get my inspiration from.
1: Yeah, that's well said. Well, there's a lovely quote from you. Creativity doesn't have to have an advertising-shaped border on it. So that adds a bit of context to as to how unfair that question was. (laughs) Speaking of unfair questions, Pringles meet Frank or Volvo ultimate safety test? Oh,
0: that is so mean. (laughs) (laughs) I am going to have to say meet Frank because of my
1: absolute fascination with zombies. (laughs) (laughs) Brilliant, brilliant. Great rationale. Uh, Sound or music? Music, Music. I think,
0: you know, it has been such a fundamental part of my life. Again, it's where a lot of my inspiration comes from. I loved it. I actually just finished listening to an almost five-hour podcast episode on Nine Inch Nails, uh, which was phenomenal. Um, yeah, music.
1: And finally, comfortable or uncomfortable? Uncomfortable, uh, see, tap. That was a, a tap-in. <laughs> we finished with a tap-in. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Uh, Laura, I can't thank you enough for joining us. Uh, this is the second time you've joined us. We're not going to talk about the first time you've joined us, <laughs> but uh, listeners can probably guess that something might have gone a bit peak Tong. But thank you. So to start the show, we always like every guest to describe the linear and not-so-linear paths that they have taken in their careers. So you famously cut your teeth as a key figure in Australia's geek girl hyperzine In the early Mm nineties, so I want to know more about that. But before that, what was your first ever job, and then what was your first proper job?
0: Right. Okay. So my first ever job, like bar delivering newspapers, which you know I grew up in the countryside, kind of on a in a rural area. So that was like getting in my mum's car and driving really long distances between houses. Wasn't really a job, but my first proper. Job was when I was 15. I worked at Cut Price Deli in the very first Westfield in Sydney, which was in Hornsby. And for those of you who can remember, in Oz Cut Price Deli, I won't sing the song, had a theme song. It was like the Walmart of delis in a way. (laughs) You had a special uniform, it was very uncomfortable. It was all made of kind of awful syntheticness with a little red tie and a little kind of special hat. Um, And my job was kind of slicing meat and uh, working behind the cheese counter Um, and i did that you know after schools and on weekends it was pretty (laughs) it was a pretty special job weighing out weighing out you know industrial sized quantities of chicken breasts to people in the in the
1: mall (laughs) oh wow (laughs) I always whenever you, there's this there's this horrible stereotype that I shouldn't I shouldn't entertain, but it's too late now. Of everyone assuming Australians grow up I don't know sheep farming or doing something on rural land. Was that ever part of your, your growing up?
0: Yeah, so I grew up I grew up. I, it's a hobby farm, it wasn't uh, so it was, which means you know it's kind of the size of a s- small farm. It was five acres. We had a farm next to us that was still ploughed with Clydesdales when I was a kid. You know we had no tarmac on the road. It was all dirt. But we I mean my parents grow is still there, and they grow everything. But it's not, it's not a farm as such. Not really producing stuff. But you know, grew up around goats and donkeys, and went to an agricultural high school. So uh, I did farm, farm mechanics for the equivalent of GCSE. So if you ever need your tractor fixed or what have you, um, <laughs> I'm, I'm your gal. <laughs>
1: <laughs> what a skill? So you said, um, in in the quote I used for your intro, you said you always loved advertising. Did that? Did that inform your decisions on going to college or university, whatever the equivalent might be?
0: No, not at all. Actually, um, you know, I went to, so although the school I went to is an agricultural school, it's kind of quite a nerdy school. It's um, the equivalent of a grammar. And I always loved creative stuff, but I was always really, really good at, at, you know, maths and science and what have you. And had a real battle and, you know, a lot of conversation I'd say with my parents as well about where to next, so, you know, my grades are really great, I could have gone and done whatever, but just the the pull of doing something creative was so strong. Um, and so, you know, I think after having many conversations with my parents about, you know, could you combine the two and what about architectural industrial design or something, I kind of went, no, I want to go and do fine art um and kind of off I went to uh it's not called College of Fine Art anymore but it's part of University of New South Wales went off there to to study fine art um and really without I'd done a little bit of experience in a design agency before computers were around so like when I was maybe again when I was about 15 When you, you know, still hand scamping and using a bromide machine, I went in there for a week and basically operated the bromide machine for a week, which is probably going to kill me. (laughs) (laughs) But, uh, yeah, I hadn't really had no plans to go into advertising at all. I just was passionate and driven about making art. And I was always really passionate about kind of a certain kind of art, like, you know, very political, very kind of consciously socially based I guess kind of art so you know very heavily influenced you know very into feminism and very into equality and particularly around gender equality and what have you and you know sort of queer themes and so that there, were, there was a lot of work you know, that' that's what, that's where I was interested I was interested in what you could communicate with your work not just making something beautiful and actually a lot of what I made wasn't very beautiful at all it was it was much more about getting the message across and kind of playing with Tropes of, you know, women's role in society and that those that kind of thing, and I was also heavily like involved in the politics of the university as well. I was um, the woman's officer and uh, was president uh, for a year. So that's what really drove me. That that the thing I could see, which is that creativity is this incredibly powerful, fundamentally human force that drives us forward and by using that in order to communicate you can create incredible change right much more I think than what you can potentially as a politician or whatever so um so so that's really where I was but but there was no and I think this is talking about being uncomfortable I think this kind of I've always been very very driven but not towards particularly a goal I've been driven to like learn I've been driven to experiment with new things I've been Driven to push myself out of my comfort zone I've been driven by this passion for changing things through creativity but but uh, yeah never ever ever in a million years did I think I was gonna land in advertising
1: (laughs) yeah I find it encouraging how many people I talk to have said that who have then subsequently landed in advertising and I think they're all the better for it to be quite honest I'm always fascinated by how there's this kind of hazy space between art and our industry and I um I went through art college and did my art foundation at Kingston, and so on and so forth, and the majority of my peers did go into industries or sectors which are obviously which which were which more kind of fine art, but it never really appealed to me because i to to steal your words, doing something that has a has, has a purpose, a social purpose, whatever it might be, just seems so much more powerful and exciting than doing art for the sake of art and I think I know that you know people can easily criticize certain creators within the industry who perhaps would have made better artists because they're more hung up with the aesthetic rather than they are about what it's actually doing so that's really interesting that early on you had that you know awareness that you wanted to do creative that had a purpose and actually achieve something yeah and
0: I think that's where you know sort of coming back to I guess geek girl so um I was in I want to say maybe my second year of university when Netscape came out so I'd been uh, what I realized when I went to university first of all um, I had painting as a major and within the first 12 weeks realized it wasn't for me because that 12-week induction course was you had to paint a sphere, a cube and and, um, uh, a pyramid on a plinth all painted white. You had to paint it in black and white, then a warm color and white, then a cool color and white and then realistic colors. And at the end of those 12 weeks, I handed in something which was absolutely not realistic colors at all. My teacher like pulled me up in front of the class and went, "Oh, I see we have a colorist amongst us." And just the idea that he had to like follow the rules <laughs> didn't really suit me. Um, I found it really stifling. And at the time, my minor was in photography, and part of photography was a very, very fl- fledgling kind of digital art bit. So alongside more traditional photography, we were being taught uh, some sort of digital skills and I had an amazing teacher there called Linda Dement, who is just the best. Um, and look her up because she has made the most groundbreaking, again, like feminist, breaking gender norms, like work in the early 90s on CD-ROM and what have you. She's really cool. And she, I think, kind of realised that I had quite an aptitude for, for it. You know, it was, everything was hypercard or you know photoshop was around but you know, the net wasn't there so she used to let me go into the master's lab and in the master's lab they had mosaic on a on a computer in there and she was like this is the cool thing that's where she hid all those silicon graphics machines which she used for all of her own work and what have you so it's this tiny little really dark room with like lots of whirring and and i would just sit in there it just blew my mind particularly this thought that as an artist, suddenly your audience doesn't have to be the people standing in front of your work. Suddenly they could be anywhere in the world, even though everywhere in the, really world, in, everywhere in the world was such a small place back then. And then Netscape hits and I'm like, right, that is my thing. So I got really, 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 I was, I'd been making stuff in director, I'd been kind of experimenting with animation, interactive stuff and cd Romy type stuff. Um, and then thought the web's my thing because I can put something out there and anyone else that has the web, whoever that was, uh, however many thousand people um, can, see, can see my stuff. So I was really exploring that space. And at the same time, this is like 1994, 95, when I think I met Rosie Cross from Geek Girl. Um, I come across this this hyperzine and the hyperzine is like a magazine with a replicated online magazine she's an incredible I guess again digital icon you know she's been around there you know talking about technology feminism cyber feminism you know forever and she built this really great it was almost like you know kind of looked like a fanzine and I went to the launch and I just thought it was the coolest thing ever and then as a secondary job uh, to kind of put myself through university I used to uh, with my friend take secondhand clothes and kind of mend them or stitch them or make them interesting and sell them at the local flea market at at Glead market and then one day sitting there in the baking sun and I thought I'd go for a walk around the market and she was there with a little table with her magazine which was probably like issue two or three you know and a roll of stickers that say put down your pony and pick up a computer and (laughs) girls need modems and I thought this is just so cool Got talking to her, her. I was wearing like a crop top, and I've got quite a big, like an escher tattoo on my stomach of interconnected sort of scorpions and spiders. And uh, she saw it. She went, "That's amazing! It's a web, the world wide web. Can I take a picture of it for the for a geek girl?" And I, I was such a fan girl. I'm like, yes, of course you can. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, and then she called me a couple of weeks later and said the photographer's pulled out, so you're not going to do it. And I went. Well, I do photography, Edie. I could take a picture of my own stomach. Um, I ended up, I think, using a photo booth in what was called the, the old Remo store in on um, Oxford Street in Sydney. But kind of went in there and took some pictures of my stomach and went, here you go. And then she said, oh, the person designing the magazine, uh, you know, and and kind of online stuff has pulled out, so we're not going to have that issue. And I went, well, I've done some of this at university, I can help. <laughs> and not realizing that you don't design, you know, printed material in things like Photoshop, there are actually pieces of software for it. It was like really like learn as you go. And kind of cobbling together this website, you know, before there, there weren't any tools to build websites back then. It was just, um, you just did it in Notepad. So, you know, did everything by hand and tested it and see, saw whether it worked and went back and re-edited it. Yeah, she just then said, uh, do you want to, you know, come and do this with me and everything you learn how to do, you've got a place for it on the web. And I was just like, yes. So that's kind of how I got involved in it. And it was amazing because I remember, I don't know when it was, it might have been 1998 or something like that. It was like written up as one of the top 20 websites in the world. <laughs> it was, you know, huge. I think, we, yeah, it was it was super cool. But, you know, it really was just made by like, a couple of us, mostly around at her house or kind of in my bedroom. And she would do – she's an incredible journalist and writer, and she'd do, you know, a lot of the writing, the interviews, what have you, and I would do a lot of the design and animation. And, yeah, that was that. Was that. <laughs> Sorry, I think I went
1: on a tangent there, but <laughs> no, 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 it was brilliant. It was excellent, and, and actually, it's it's really interesting. I wonder whether was it just because everything was so new that, and and perhaps there were there were no barriers to entry. It was all very, you know, I don't know what the right word is, democratic. Maybe the fact that you could just dive into new forms of media and just learn how to put it together and just create things. I mean,
0: I think that's the, that was the beauty of the web was that you could literally view source, right? That's how everyone learnt. And you had people like Joshua Javis back in the day as well, you know, when Flash kind of started to take off, who would publish all of his code and you'd take it and you'd hack it and you'd see what happened. And that's how you learnt. And actually I'd say everything that I've learnt, I've learnt on the job, which has been amazing, you know, and then kind of moving into had a first proper job so I started my own agency when I was at uni it was really me and then my brother when I needed some like hardcore kind of hardcore coding because he's phenomenal and it was called joystick digital media which at the time I thought was like a joke on it was kind of like a a, a gamer bro dick joke (laughs) in a way but I realised that I could make money out of the stuff that I was doing for my art because no one, you know, there, there there weren't a lot of people who could kind of cut and code stuff, and there were no filters on Photoshop, and you know, I knew how to do do all of that by hand. So I realised that, you know, oh right, I can I can start to do this. So I, I you know, I I go into a, often an advertising agency, spend 72 hours taking their f- Photoshop files and turning it into something that was usable. And then they'd go, you know, this page needs a form. How does the information go from the computer to where does it go to? And I'm like, right, you need a database. So write in the database, build their stuff. And yeah, and that's kind of really how I got started um, in, wasn't really advertising, but, you know, in building things for brands.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, since since we last recorded, actually, you've written a fantastic piece in Adweek where you talk about the uh, business of commercial creativity. Is that the main hook, do you think, that then made you follow that career into Adland?
0: Yeah, well, I think the, the kind of interesting bit was as I was kind of getting this business off the ground I was still studying, I was living in a kind of an art commune uh, called Imperial Slacks, um, which is kind of based in the in Surrey Hills, which is now very posh in Sydney, but at the time it was like rough as... Um, And, you know, we were all people that had gone to or were going to art school together, studying various things. And we had a gallery in the middle of our space. And it was a very collaborative, very, like, uber creative space. And, you know, we still do kind of speak and spend a lot of time, you know, with each other. There's lots of collaborations that go on. Most of the people that belong to that kind of collective have gone on to be professional artists. And some of them quite famous, you know artists as well and represented Australia at the Biennale and all of that kind of stuff so I was around like amazing people doing amazing things and being really challenged and you know I'm really I'm so hungry to learn new things and then I think when I kind of started to move into the more commercial space equally I mean I was still kind of surrounded my office was in the same I just took out on two bedrooms in this in this space, so I had my bedroom, then I had my office, and we still had the gallery, and we still had like people going backwards and forwards and doing little projects for people, for their artworks, and I was still making art, and um, it just seemed like a really natural kind of flow. And then once I left university, well, the thing I like, kind of, I did my b- bachelor's, I did my master's, I extended that over a longer period of time, so I could kind of work as well. Um, and then I started another master's degree uh, at the same university I'd done like a master's by coursework I kind of started a master's by research and so I was always kind of involved in at uni and I was always had an arts practice but that work bit took up more and more time and I actually also was teaching at the university a couple of days a week because I was helping them set up a digital media course because they you know, as I said, before then, it was kind of sat as an adjunct of photography. So, you know, doing, doing lots of things, but very much still involved in art. And it was actually when I was with my students at the university, which kind of took me even kind of further into the commercial world. So, um you know, we'd get amazing speakers coming to talk from all over the world this amazing person called Simon Woodfall who I don't know if anyone knows but you know he, he's another ex-DNAD president, total like a visionary and like crazy beautiful person. Um, he came to speak to my students and I think he came and he was wearing a dress and he had purple mohawk and he was showing this digital work that was so cool compared to the commercial work that was happening in Australia it was more akin to the stuff I was making as art and I just thought that is the coolest company I want to work for you and he was opening an agency a, a branch of his agency Deep End in Sydney so I spoke to him and just kind of said <laughs> I want to come and work for you and ho- honestly it was his kind of mentorship and support um you know over the, over the next 12 months or so he, he was like well, I only hire the best designers in the world and you'd have no design training <laughs> so fair comment like you're, you you, know there's something but I think he saw something really really interested in, interesting in me and and um what have you and so when he'd come back to Sydney we'd catch up and I'd share my portfolio again and he'd you know still you know kind of say it's it's, it's not really <laughs> you know you're still not one of the best designers in Sydney Laura <laughs> and then um <laughs> but I like just persevered. Um, And we just really, really got on. And, you know, he would would kind of challenge me to make my work better. And I respond to that. And then finally said, look, there's a job going, it's not as a designer, it's a producer. But would you come and, you know, work at Deep End? And I was like, yep, done. (laughs) Goodbye. Goodbye, running my own company. Um, Hello, Deep End. And that was phenomenal because suddenly I was with the best designers in Sydney, like sitting right next to them, learning from them, um, you know, and I was there for, I want to say maybe a year before really it was, he helped me move to, to London to the head office and he said, look, there's a job as a designer now, but it's the most junior designer and if you want to come to London and work for 12 grand a year, come on over and I was like, yep, done, <laughs> <laughs> so actually <laughs> packed up Sydney, came over here, and then I was working with the best designers in, in the world. And like, I, I love, like, my very first desk mate was actually Lolly from McCann, who, you know, we, we, we shared a desk space when I first moved over, which was wonderful. But, yeah, that's that's kind of how I got to London and how I really, uh, it was the most incredible space. It was so punk and it was so such good energy and it was so experimental and so many wildly talented and just wild people working there it was real you know it was real buzz I absolutely loved it and then unfortunately the dot-com crash happened and and deep end closed its doors. not in sydney actually it's still running but um most other places in the world unfortunately
1: what i find really interesting is that you're, you come from a a tech background well you're an art background and a tech com- uh, background given you're one of the first Coders, really. But I've heard you speak about something you believe in being the idea that creativity is that fundamental force, but we've relied too much on tech at the expense of creativity. Is that something that seemed to happen following your move to London? Did you notice that happening over the next decade or so? Or was that a very modern thing?
0: Absolutely, over the next decade, I would say. I started noticing it happened somewhere around two thousand seven two thousand nine when when not even for the first year or two of social because it was so open, so I think what happened is more money went into so i you know everything that we used to make was so experimental and it was very much like an artwork and the beautiful thing about making digital work back then was you never knew when something was going to be possible when you started it it was through. And that's why you know agile ways of working that they use in tech are so important because it gives you an opportunity to change tech. You know you've got an over, overarching goal, but you you have ways around a, a, you know a, a blockage, I guess. But you know you kind of have a vague idea that something is possible, and then you go out to make it real. Um, that was very much how it used to work, and then you know like I said the first couple of years of social even Facebook had open APIs like everything was still like open and playful and you could do really interesting things and suddenly as the money started to go in there and that ended up being you know started to be an advertising platform not really a social space in the same way everything started to lock down and suddenly you went from being able to do like Twitter's a lot better I'll defend Twitter to death because at least you can kind of rip the API out and do like crazy things with it but you know you it, it suddenly found yourself being really limited by what you were able to produce and actually you couldn't use that that power that creativity that force was very much put in a box of a you know I remember the you know Facebook ad you've got a tiny little Still image as a box, and you can't put any text on it or whatever and and that's what you had to play with, and that's not as much as they would come into your agency and talk about the brilliant creative you know place to see you could place there there was no there, there was nothing there, and I think you know the the reliance on data again you can do such exciting things with it right you can use it for insight, you can find really awesome stuff you can connect different feeds and do wild things and instead. It became very corporatized, and everything you know you get to where you are now with you know a lot of programmatic stuff which it's not it's not creative at all there's I'm sure there's a certain kind of creativity in there in in writing the algorithm and what have you, but there's no that the human creative force is no longer there, and more and more money was going in there and I think that's been the the real shame and I think it came to a head for me. Actually, when I was working at DARE, I, I had been at an agency called LBI, which is now, and then it was called Digitas LBI. And now I think it's, you know, just called Publicist something. But, you know, I was there again in these like heady days. I think social media had, had just happened. We were hacking stuff, making stuff, like doing crazy things with technology. We were also building like multi-million platforms for very important brands, you know, banking, you know, hardcore banking apps, what have you. But when I, when I then went to DARE, I realised that the digital creativity that was coming from one of the very best creative digital shops in the world, there were still some sparks of brilliance, but a lot of it was just putting what you saw above line in a banner ad or like bashing out banner ads with the copy matrix. Um, and I went, okay, this, there's something really, really wrong. And there are so many brilliant things about digital, like I said, the experimentation, the agile way of working, the ability to throw yourself into something without knowing it's going to happen, the, the, fun, the really deep understanding of the audience that you're talking to because it's vital if you're making an app or a service. Like all of that stuff is so brilliant, but instead none of it is happening. And actually I think the interesting thing, with this kind of shift back to contextual advertising that's happening because of all the, you know, because of Apple, because of the rules around cookies, I think, I'm hoping we'll get us into a more interesting space because there's so much creativity in contextual advertising
1: um, that's untapped. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. What's really exciting and very interesting um, from what you've shared with us today is is There seems to be a consistent theme of of it being the first time something's been used or the first time code was appropriate, the first time you've done all sorts of things. And I wonder whether it's because of that originality, it was so creative and that was so powerful, whereas now it's just become very formulaic. Um, you use the word wild, I think, whereas now it's all become quite tamed by the likes of social media companies saying, well, you can have an image, but it has to be an image and it has to be in this box. And that's just completely, it's completely. Yeah,
0: uh, so don't give me a box.
1: Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Is it, would it be right to make a link? This could be a stretch that I'm trying to force on you here. But is it right to make a link from that to that? There's a great quote and I just want to make sure I understand it from this recent article. Uh, in Adweek, which is preventing agencies from becoming the least creative places on Earth, uh, which we'll link to in this episode. Um, but you've said that no no amount of reporting from Can Lion to Cantar uh, Millward-Brown stops our relentless and self-destructive move towards the industrialisation of what we deliver. Is that what you mean by the industrialisation? Yeah, absolutely. Uh,
0: absolutely. It is, been, it is a process now. You know what I mean it's a (laughs) what we do now I I always think if a you know if a machine can do your work then that's you need to take that next step up into that you know kind of next creative space I do think there are really exciting creative spaces for us but but it is you know it's industrialized and both coming from the, the technology platforms but also from and there are some brilliant procurement people out there but you know the that kind of heightened importance of procurement the whole way through the process, you know, including creativity. I think we do ourselves a disservice, not talking enough about the value add that we make through creativity. We tend to go, look, this is a really cool idea. And then the poor client has to decide, is it this really cool idea or this safe idea that I know is going to get results? And we don't do enough to prove that the more creative the idea is, oh, I guess, you know, that the more effective it is, I guess the only challenge to that is, as I said, can Lyon write about this all the time? Can I write about this all the time? It is a well-known fact. You know, you can kind of pull any kind of marketing, <laughs> I'll call them a, like people like Mark Ritson, more of a philosopher, uh, but, you know, everyone is in agreement that brilliantly creative work that answers the brief, sells more stuff that is what that is the most effective thing and yet it just gets like left behind
1: i think it also gets misreported doesn't it and you can't it's, it's a funny one and i think i think um i i know i sound very cynical when i reflect about our industry but i do think that we've backed ourselves into these corners or we've allowed it to happen and if you listen to the big tech firms who are selling formulaic creative solutions uh it, it makes sense because it's their solution and, and it, that old saying follow the money it, of course that's how that their business is reliant on selling this product the trouble is we've we've almost all been hoodwinked and I think maybe it happened maybe maybe agencies were hoodwinked at a stage when it was new and original and, and quite rightly we were exploring these new tools and before we realized it they'd, they'd taken the whole game
0: yeah I think I think so and actually you know we kind of eagerly threw ourselves in it if i think about the birth of social and and like i said facebook before they closed everything off how exciting was it to be able to like build something and like bring someone's friends into the digital experience on another on a brand's platform or to you know write really fun things that you know just said you know you think this is your best friend but this is actually the person that you've been spending the most time with and actually that bring ability to access that data because it is really sticky data. It was so exciting, um, you know, and now look back on some of that and go, God, we were kind of doing <laughs> Facebook's work for us, it, for them in a lot of ways. And certainly I have a very different view, you know, when you put your data and ethics and privacy hat on, very different view now to what I did very naively when we were first playing with it. I think none of us kind of saw, or foresaw the problems that it would cause. And, and certainly, we were, we were more than eager to take that stuff and play with it and to you know, effectively build cooler stuff with their, with their pipelines um, for brands because it was fun.
1: <laughs> we interrupt this podcast to announce that we will never interrupt this podcast with ads. Ads that awkwardly nudge you to contact the pod's host, Charles Edwards, at gasp.agency. Only the other day, some pod-listening companies did just that, calling for guidance on research and brand identity. But we're definitely not asking you to do that. Anyway, back to the show. My first sort of proper paid weekly job was a holiday job as a student, uh, which was driving a forklift truck at the Ribena factory. Ah, Call to Action, episode 11, with the one and only Rory Sutherland. Not what we were looking for, but hang on a minute. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and we've all got that magpie in us. Ah, there we go. And, and we're, we're better, we're better for it, but we can trick ourselves sometimes with it. I, I think I'm mindful of the time, and normally we have two listener questions, but that beautiful man Nick, who we were talking about pre-recording, has uh, has actually just sent me another one. So I'm gonna I'm gonna make an exception and ask three if I may. Okay. So asking the general public for their opinion, be it on Brexit or boat names, is notoriously fraught with danger. But that's not stopped us asking. So we've had one in as we record from Nick. Nick Ellis, this is, founder of Halo. With a glittering career like yours, you must have so much work that's been significant to you. But what work do you look back on and think that was career defining, that that was an end of level boss moment? <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Thanks, Nick.
0: You know, I've got a few that really stand out for me. And they're not necessarily big projects and they're not necessarily big even award-winning projects you know I think I've got, I've made loads and loads of cool stuff but the things that mean the most to me are the things that have made the biggest change so I would say um there was a piece of work that I did many years ago at LBI um it was a 10 grand brief from Macmillan Cancer Support to create an online form that like a pre-filled online form that allowed you to to email your local MP to talk to them about fuel poverty for cancer patients and we took that brief and through the research that we were kind of digging through we just realized that most MPs put those pro forma letters in the bin so we thought we need to do something else and so we came up with the most crazy idea (laughs) and I'm still blown away to this day that it happened the idea it was called the infinite and it was A robotic first internet controlled robotic knitting machine that would take a beautiful message about what makes you feel warm uh, and your name as a signature to this petition. It would, because we couldn't afford moderation, convert that into a knitting pattern and knit that into a scarf that ran for I can't remember how long it ran for, it ran for months. Um, And because, and we had it in the basement of our of our building we painted this beautiful wall that had live web feeds this was maybe 2008 2009 so pretty early on in terms of that kind of thing Uh, live web feeds so you could watch your thing being knitted you know collecting all of that data and all of these beautiful messages um having to solve problems all the time like this knitting machine we had um it knits a particular way which means it curls at the edges and so then everything was coming down curled and then we couldn't figure out how to like Create the right torsion, and then one of our tech guys, who's just amazing, was in the toilet using the, hair, you know, the um, the hand towel things where you wave your hands in front of it and the towel comes out. And went, this is brilliant for torsion. So we took it off the wall, agency. <laughs> we called it part, <laughs> kind of affixed it to. So it had all this wood, and we had a, a beautiful, beautifully painted uh, behind um, my creative team. Tia and Emil, are just phenomenal, and kind of you know did this beautiful thing in the infinite. And then it would break down all the time because it's do, doing what it wasn't meant to do. Like everything was a hack. Every, every day we were going, are we going to make this? Or we've got the plan B that we can go back to what the client brief was and just, you know, bash out that form. Um, and there were so many insurmountable things like, where do we get the wool from? We've got no cash. Where do we, so, we, you know, had an amazing producer, Ashley, who just did all of this crazy work to get everything to work and found parts of the machine and et cetera, et cetera. and, and, it, yeah said like amazing tech department who ripped apart this knitting machine and and connected it to the web um and then we ended up with this amazing long scarf that was taller than big ben in the end and had thousands and thousands of messages and you know delivered that to number 10 and i think one of the princes took a piece to the north pole actually and and the law got changed um which is amazing so now you know so, so that we did everything we said we were going to do and it was super effective and I think the, the loveliest thing is as because it broke down all the time to make the fixing of the machine more interesting you would have to put on a sheet mask to fix the machine just for fun and and it was all connected to our phone so if it broke down we'd all get an alert in the middle of the night and someone would have to go in and fix it but this thing of like hashtag sheet mask <laughs> ended up being this like huge huge thing so you suddenly had all of these people following you online to (laughs) to spot the spot the sheet mask so that had took a life of its own and I just absolutely adored that piece of work so much I'm still really proud of it and you can find it on YouTube actually and I think for the the technology of the day as well it was cool
1: (laughs) oh so good that is so good we'll we'll we'll, uh, link to that in this episode as well because that um that sounds incredible. Um, number two is from Chloe, who asks, if you, was, if you were stuck on a desert island, would you prefer to have either art supplies to create or your favourite pieces of art to admire?
0: I think that's a really easy one for me. It's art supplies to create, 100%. You know, admiring takes you so far, but if I'm not actually making something, <laughs> I, think I, would go, I think I would go mad. So, yeah, absolutely
1: create, 100%. <laughs> yeah no, I, I think that was an easy answer I, I could tell which way you're going to go there yeah And <laughs> uh, the, the last listener question is from Danny Danny asks I read recently that one of your favorite things about this job is that we get to become experts in the most random things what's the strangest place your cu- curiosity has taken a deep dive lately
0: oh that is so interesting most recently I am learning about energy I guess energy courts retail spaces in really interesting places around the world. So I'm learning everything about the service stations, basically, um, doing some really interesting exploration about the future of a service station, you know, once we kind of hit electric cars. And, yeah, so, so that's absolutely fascinating. Like, what is, what is a service station actually? Where, you know, who uses them? How are they used differently in different countries all around the world? Who who goes there? What are their drivers? I mean, it's it's really cool, actually. <laughs> so, that's...
1: My friends take the piss out of me because I famously throughout my life have adored service stations. Oh, <laughs> I, just love, I just love them. I think I've done it to most interview. of them. Yeah.
0: <laughs> no, you know, there's a really great book which is about the history of service stations in the UK, which I think is great that um, they're just they're really interesting places I think we've got a friend of an old friend of mine Zena Kay who became obsessed with airports for a while these kind of non-space these non-spaces or these kind of spaces that you kind of travel to and through and you know the architecture and the function of them is uh, it's just fascinating and how it's changed over time I don't know there's so
1: much to go into there <laughs> it is yeah well it's fascinating because there's so much weird stuff like, like where else do you see like a massage chair sat next to a public toilet I mean it's just it's just bizarre bizarre and wonderful I'm I'm um I can't not add the fact that last time we spoke you talked about juice consumption around the world yeah. so oh goodness, <laughs> you're not yes. lying you do constantly <laughs> <learn about random> <laughs> <things>. <laughs> yeah
0: exactly I'm I'm st- I'm still deep in juice consumption but I feel like the learning curve my my learning curve is um is maxed out there I think uh yeah service stations is a new thing there's washing machines before that so everything everything to do with the washing machine
1: <laughs> oh brilliant yeah brilliant Laura the final part then of the interview is the four pertinent poses that we put to all of our guests starting with what advice would you give to your younger self really good question
0: it sounds a bit silly but um just to say don't worry it's all going to work out okay <laughs> I think it's probably you know like not to not to kind of worry not to worry so much about about uh where things are where things are going you know I've always been a bit of a just do it person but I think I would just flag early on that that is for me anyway that's the key that's been the key to my success just throwing myself in the deep end with something that sounds really exciting
1: <laughs> yeah that's great advice it's great advice I think the um I think the anxiety levels when you are young and just starting out can be quite extreme um, based around a myth that there's a right way of getting into whatever job role you want to do. But I think um, I, I regularly hear people saying similar things, which, which is actually really reassuring. And I think more, more people starting out need to hear it. So well said. Number two, if you could banish one thing from the industry, what would it be and why?
0: Um, I can't remember what I said last time it's probably going to be around the same thing but I think dicks like as in (laughs) as in as in shitheads as in assholes look I think unfortunately particularly coming through that creative side of the agency and in technology that there's always been like I've always been the only woman in a really male world and that's been okay for me but it's not okay for a lot of people and not just women but you know I think um it's still pretty hard for people um who are a bit different to succeed you know even even when I was going through the ranks you know I had a creative director say to me well you can't work on this because because girls aren't funny uh you know I, I know people who actually are kind of younger than me you know, kind of the next generation down, you know, worked with one amazing woman who changed her name to her initials just because she wasn't getting any freelance work with her name because she was a woman. And that is similar to, you know, your experience, I think, as any, you know. For example, you know, if you're black British, it's tough if you're, you know. So I would say just, like, banish that. I like that attitude and the, the lack of listening to people <laughs> and, you know, and, and bring in a more supportive culture.
1: There's, there's some great initiatives, including ones that you've, you've founded yourself that are tackling that problem, but I think it's a, still a big fight. Number three, Laura, any books that you can recommend to our listeners? And these don't have to be work-related. They can be a mix or, or either side.
0: Um, I mean, I'm, I'm a great lover of books. Um at the moment I am reading if if you're only probably gonna to want to read this if you're from Sydney. <laughs> but I'm reading a book called Eternity. Um and that is this fantastic story. So uh, there was there was a guy who was basically like homeless for most of his life who used to just scrawl in this beautiful cursive in, in chalk or kind of stone on the pavement, eternity all over Sydney. And this is like you know in the 50s. And it became kind of so famous actually now, like when we had the the millennia, they, they created Eternity on the Sydney Harbour Bridge for, you know, in fireworks. But it's like a real Sydney thing, a real kind of icon. He's a bit of an icon, but very unknown person as a human. You know, you just know him from this like it's beautiful piece of cursive writing. So this is a book about him, which is really interesting. Um, and I'm a huge fan of, oh God, I just love everything, huge fan of old Huruki Mirakami. If you haven't read the old ones, you're missing out. You know, things like Hard Boiled Wonderland or um, Wild Sheep Chase, those kinds of the the, the 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 classics of kind of magical realism, I guess you call it. But I, I, I lived in Japan for a while and, you know, kind of spent a lot of time there. And there's just something so beautifully japanese about them <laughs> um this, this little the details the fixation with the fixation with food and preparing food the like the real noodling in things like jazz music and and just and then on top of that total bonkersness and fantasy it's it's cool
1: amazing we'll, we'll, we'll include links to those um, and then number four is we always dedicate every episode to someone and we bestow that honor to our guest who has to give the reason why. So would you kindly dedicate this episode? Absolutely.
0: I mean, I'm going to sound silly, but, you know, I dedicate it really to my mum, to my mum and dad. But, like, my mum specifically has just... She's just the most, like, magical, like, open person. And, and why I really dedicate it... Now, dedicate it to her because she... She is such a deep thinker. So, you know, when I... You know, it was, it was art school, and I would, you know, share my work with her, which was sometimes quite um, in your face, right? I, I got once they've actually got it hanging in their house now, which I think is very cool. But you know, part of my master's project was a, I blew up a two centimeter by two centimeter vagina from a porn site. It was a, you know, porn was internet porn was kind of in its infancy, but everywhere, and, and there was a lot of sexism, as there is now in the metaverse, with like um, unwanted advances, even when it was just in a chat room back then. And so it was a real kind of dialogue around that. But anyway, I sort of blew it up and so the pixels were like two inches big and then we knitted it and sewed it together and and it became this huge rug. So my parents have got this enormous pixelated clitoris basically in their house. (laughs) But when we were were making it, when when I was making it, I realized I wasn't going to get it done in time. My mum used to volunteer up at the nursing home up the road from them. So she's like, right, I'm going to get the, these old ladies to knit stuff. And my mum didn't know what was being knitted. Um, and we were marking it all out on the floor. And then one day she realised, and she kind of, because all the old ladies were asking what they were knitting, and mum's like, you know, my daughter's art project. And then my mum wrote me this, like, huge, I want to say it's an email, but it might have even been a letter, you know, that kind of started off, like, not under, you know, like I don't understand wh- what you've written or why or what have you. And then she works through it all, like she's very philosophical, you know, kind of worked through it all. And at the end, she's like, Yes, and I un- like, I get it. And like the feminist, you know, discourse and blah, 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 blah. And this is really fantastic. And I'm going to tell the old ladies that they're living in her and I'm going to tell them why. And I thought, like, that just that sums up my mum to a T. She's so open to which I think is the most beautiful thing. She's just so open to other points of view and really thinking about stuff and working through it to develop her own idea about where things are. She's been so supportive of everything that I've ever done. But she's the only person I know who'll literally write me an email that takes me half an hour to get through it's <laughs> just these incredibly deep thoughts about the world or the family unit or whatever it's going on in her life I just think she's amazing
1: yeah oh, she sounds she really sounds amazing she sounds she fantastic.
0: gives great feedback on my work as well which I think is incredible
1: I don't doubt that at all I don't yeah. doubt that at all we, we very proudly dedicate this episode to, to your mum thank you as a, as a final call to action, everything we've discussed will be listed on the episode. But how else can our listeners get more Laura JB?
0: Uh, so on Twitter, I'm at Laura J-A-Y-B-E-E, Laura JB. Um, and that's really my, uh, that's that's kind of my channel of choice. I think that with so many fingers and so many pies and making so much stuff, I always find I have so little time for, and I'm I'm not much of a kind of a selfie or a, hey, look, I had this for breakfast stuff. Uh, um so um so so twitter twitter is a thing um uh, obviously she says um if you go to we are she says you'll get the link if you are interested in doing that um i'm you know often privileged enough to to be speaking different places what have you i can't think of what's coming up now but um i'm sure there's plenty of places there as well or um you know um i'm, I'm in grey a lot <laughs> so,
1: <laughs> in a new office with so my wonderful team up. here
0: in a brand new office I'm actually sitting in a room at the moment where if you don't move the lights go out so I'm sitting in total darkness, it's quite nice
1: <laughs> <laughs> wonderful amazing, yeah. well, we, we, we'll, we'll put the links to uh, She Says uh, your uh, recent Adweek article we'll look up any upcoming events where you have a presence and we'll include all of that
0: yeah, wicked, thank you
1: Uh, But, Laura, it's been ace. I've adored talking. I've adored the fact that you've been sat in the dark as well, actually. That's that's wonderful, too. Uh, But thank you so much. Thank you so much, Laura.
0: Oh, man, thank you so much as well. Uh, Pleasure, pleasure,
1: pleasure. And finally, thank you to everyone listening. If you've enjoyed the episode, please do share and review the podcast. Keep the questions and guest requests coming in. To get in touch, it's easy to find Gasp online. You can check out CTA Pod on Instagram or just email Hello at calltoaction.co. I can't get no call to action. I can't get no call to action. But I try and I try.